All right, we're going to get going here. Good morning, everyone. Good day to be in church. Thank you for coming out. And we get to jump into the prophet Joel this morning. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. That's the 12. So we made it to number... Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm here all week. So we're to number two. And what I'd like you to do, whether you're doing it on your phone or in a hard copy, is open up to Joel, okay? Open up to the prophet Joel, and as soon as you get there, you're going to see that this is a very short book. It's three chapters, but of course we can't think of chapters like we think of like English book chapters. These are biblical chapters, which means it's like 25 lines or something like that. Here's what I'd like you to do. I think there's going to be some wisdom before me talking about Joel to give you a chance to familiarize yourself with Joel. So take about 10 minutes, and my bet is that's about the maximum amount of time it's going to take, and just read it. Read Joel chapter 1, 2, and 3. Start at the beginning, boom, straight through. You're not trying to remember all the details. You're not trying to capture everything. Just get a sense for the flow and what's going on in the book. We'll gather back up in a few. Go. Okay, we'll pull this together. If you need to keep reading, just go ahead while I talk. But I want to talk to you today about what we do with this odd little prophetic book called Joel. And as you were reading it through, maybe some of you for the first time, what, what were some of the questions or what seemed to be the, the issues or tone of at least what was going on? What were things that, that grabbed you? Just shout it out. Let's make a list here. Okay, we, we we're getting a sense of devastation at the beginning, right? Um, build on that. What else? Locusts. Right, did you pick up on the locusts in here? Okay, what's the big deal about the locusts? We got devastation. The devastation seems to be by locusts. What else? Fire, the army is invading and covering it. We see fires and invading armies and things like that. Did you kind of pick up on that? Right, okay, fantastic. What else? I hear the word sackcloth a lot. Is that about Yeah, you hear the word sackcloth a lot. Did you catch those things? There was a lot of calls to repentance, a lot of calls to, to sackcloth and calling fasts and... And, you know, people weeping before the altar, things of this nature. Yes, there's a call to repentance in the middle of this devastation. However, that relates to the locusts and the armies and the invading nations, you know, things like that. What else? Anything else in there? Day of the Lord. We come across this phrase called the Day of the Lord, right? That's a big thing in the Old Testament prophets. And this is the first time we really come across it in the minor prophets. Yeah. So we've like, yeah. A little contradiction there on you know, is it a locust? Like what is it? You know? So if you were looking at footnotes or if you were reading in like U version and you clicked on some of those little icons every now and then you come across a phrase she said the meaning of this Hebrew word is uncertain, which is kind of common with flora and fauna in the Hebrew language, gems, things like that too. It's like what do you do with that, right? Great question. And it says the day of the Lord is near and it's coming, right? And yet, let's go back to the locusts. Did you have this, this, this kind of move that as you're reading, you feel like you're talking about locusts at first and then something happens and you don't know quite where and you're not quite sure if you're talking about locusts anymore. And then you read a little further on and you're pretty confident that you're not talking about locusts anymore. 
And did you catch this too, that when you started, when we're talking about the locusts, it seemed to be a past tense kind of thing happening, right? Did you catch that? But as we're moving on, it starts to talk about future. It uses words like afterward, or then, or to come, or will comes into the verbal language, things like that. And it can really leave you with a little bit of um, uncertainty and confusion as to what is happening in this prophet called Joel. So let's start here. It is the first prophet, did you catch this, that does not have a date-time signature. Do you remember every other prophet we've looked, looked at so far? You take Isaiah. Isaiah 1.1 says this. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, called to the people of Judah or the kings of Judah during the reigns of, and then it would list Uzziah and you know Ahaz and, and so forth. All the prophets have that. Joel, he's a little bit more free-floating here. You don't have a, a stamp like that to give you precisely when this is taking place. And just kind of an interesting bit of trivia, it's why if you look in different versions of the Bible, you'll actually see Joel placed in different orders because what the people of the Bible, the editors of the Bible do is they try to arrange these prophets chronological, so to speak, the minor prophets at least. But Joel, eh, if you look in the Hebrew texts, he's up close. That's the way that we have it. If you look in the Greek translations, the Septuagint, if you know what that term means, he comes a little bit deeper. The order is different. I, I wrote it down. It's specifically Hosea, Amos, Micah, Joel is the order it would come in. So when did this take place and what's going on to help us understand what this prophet is getting at? Well, what I'm going to submit to you is it's actually not as important a question for Joel as you think it is. Because what you can do is still capture the sense in the meaning of Joel that more or less transcends any kind of devastation as a help not only to ancient Israel, but also as a window to us to what God is calling us to do in, the, in, in, in times like those. So what we're going to do is begin with the locusts. And I'm going to try to get about an hour of material into 30 minutes here today. We might have to do a part two if I am going too fast, know what's internally motivating me, and you need to slow me down, okay? Let's start with the locusts. Now, I'm going to give you my initial reaction when I read about stuff like this. What's the big deal? If I was to talk to you about locusts, does that send a shiver down your spine, right? Do your children cower at night because of the locusts? I mean, the worst we really get around here is that 17-year cicada cycle, which I thought was supposed to hit this year, but if that was it... It hit out east, like D.C. area. Did it hit out in the D.C. area pretty bad? Okay. I mean, you just heard them and you saw a bunch of dead ones. But yeah, right. But, but even then, I mean, I remember 17-ish years ago where, you know, where I lived, they would come out and they would just swarm you and cling to your car and you'd be deaf from outside. But even then, being a... 21st century suburbanite, it really isn't more than a nuisance at worst, right? But let me read to you how Joel talks about this. This is 1 verse 6. A nation has invaded my land. 
powerful and without number. It is the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the husband of her youth. Grain offerings, drink offerings are cut off from the Lord. The fields are ruined. The ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Despair, you farmers. Wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up. The fig is withered. The pomegranate, the palm, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the joy of mankind is withered away. That's pretty strong language there at the end, isn't it? Have you looked at a locust swarm and gone, the joy of mankind is withered away? He did. Why? Let me go on. This is verse 3. 2 verse 3. Before them, fire devours. Behind them, a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop like cavalry with a noise like that of chariots. They leap over the mountaintops like crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sign of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight against, plunging through the defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run upon the wall. They climb into houses like thieves, they enter through windows. Before them, the earth shakes. Remember that verse for later. Before them, the earth shakes. The sky trembles. The sun and moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. And aren't you at this point a little bit like, okay, come on. Come on. They're locusts. (laughs) What I want to try to do for the rest of the morning is convince you on the gravity of what they were facing because Joel will compare it to an army, an army without number that cannot be stopped, an army before whom the nations quake. Um, It's even described as Yahweh's army, actually. Like Yahweh is leading this army of locusts. I want to show you a picture here today. And to me, this really captures the tone of it. Let me get out of your way here, Jenny. I don't know if you could see it okay. This is from 1952. This is a locust swarm that hit Africa. And it's not the last, and it wasn't the first. But there's something about this picture, and I think in part because it is black and white, that captures the sense of the calamity. For me, I look at a picture like this and I feel like it should be at a Poe or something like that. I, I mean, there's just horror. And, and in case you don't know what you're looking at yet, if you haven't pieced together, this is a real photo from 1952 of a locust swarm hitting Africa. You can have some fun on Google. You get lost in Google image with this. Just type locust swarm 1952 Africa. And you, you'll see just the calamity of these, these pictures. Um, and the devastation it wrought on this, not just country, but continent. 
because the swath of this locust swarm was sub-Saharan Africa up through Mesopotamia, um, you know, the entire Fertile Crescent region, and just laid waste. Now look at this picture and imagine the amount of this plague destroying everything that you depend on to eat, stripping every tree bare, clinging to you, rushing you, being found in every corner of your house, flying on you, jumping on you, even though they don't really bite. Just the absolute, just vegetative carnage that becomes the root of all your livelihood. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes. Such as never was of old, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours, behind them a, fire, a flame blazes. Before them the land of Eden is, uh, the land is like the Garden of Eden, Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops. Normally a mountain range would block an army from advancing. You know, Like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns Hail. Does the picture help a little bit? I want to give you another illustration. Little House on the Prairie. Who's read it? Now, I remember once having to do a report on Little House of the Prairie, and this was the time like when the Michael Landon one was still on in, in syndication. And I thought that Little House on the Prairie actually took place in Walnut Grove in Minnesota. And I find out, oh, no, that was just like book three out of like eight books that she wrote. And yeah, teacher burned me on that one. <laughs> but if you've ever read book three, and I think it's book three, four maybe, on the banks of Plum Creek, this is the journey of Laura Ingalls Wilder. And again, we're talking late 19th century, late 1800s, right? When... Her and Pa and Ma and whatever their kids' names were, right, were looking to settle new farmland. Little House on the Prairie is about them moving from Wisconsin, actually, and settling in Kansas land. And they made a go of it in Kansas and found themselves on the wrong side of a treaty line and had to displace. If I'm remembering the storyline correctly, the next place they go to settle and start over is Minnesota, up at Plum Creek. And you can actually go there today, and they have, like, Nellie's general store and artifacts and like the old mud shed that they used to live in. It, it's kind of worth driving through, maybe not too, but um, kind of interesting if you're into this thing. Why am I bringing this up? Because in this book, she describes the locust swarm that hit her family and Minnesota and the Dakotas all the way down to Texas that displaced her family again and resulted in them leaving Plum Creek. Let me read you just a couple of stats about the locust swarm, not from Laura Ingalls Wilder, but about this one that hit in like 1872, if I'm not mistaken on the date. This is from a middle, grade, uh, a middle school um, book called Bugged, or Bugged, How Insects Changed History. Okay? It's by Sarah Elby. 
talking about how bad it was for American pioneers at this time. The sound the locusts made were compared to the roaring of a huge waterfall. Not only were crops devoured in minutes, but so too was the wool from the bodies of live sheep, and even according to some reports, the clothes off people's backs. And she'll actually record that about her sister wearing this sash that was made of some kind of like cotton or you know, organic, just the locust eating it to shreds while she's wearing it. Trains couldn't move along the tracks because the insects made the rails too slippery. The locusts, or hoppers as people called them, remained for a few days to a week and then left as they had come on the wind. Here's another account. As a child, Wilder survived a cloud of 3.5 trillion locusts. In the mid-1870s, Laura witnessed one of the most devastating natural disasters the country had ever known, a locust plague that had caused an estimated $116 billion in their day worth of damage from the Dakotas to Texas, pushing thousands of settlers to the brink of starvation and ruin, including her own family. The Rocky Mountain locust was the culprit, the only swarming grasshopper species in the U.S. and Canada. It went extinct around 1902 for reasons that have never been explained. This is some of the mindset you have to get into when you think about this locust swarm that Joel is talking about, when the people are lamenting, when the fear is gripping, when the sound and the comparison to nations destroying is used. This is what they're facing in Joel. And Joel turns it, and he says Yahweh is actually leading it. It's called Yahweh's army. And the prophet Joel, in the midst of what Yahweh is leading, starts calling the people to repentance. How many times did you see things like this pop up in the book where he says, tell it to your children. Let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What you have seen will never be seen again. Mourn, weep, blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill, because the day of the Lord is coming. It's close at hand. Even now return to me with all your heart, with weeping and fasting and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garment. Return to the Lord your God. He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents or repents would be a better translation. He repents from sending Calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. And then specifically grain offerings and drink offerings for Yahweh, your God. Think about the significance of grain offerings and drink offerings. What do you need to give a grain offering? Grain. What do you need to give a drink offering? Grapes, right? Maybe Yahweh will turn, return to Yahweh, and maybe Yahweh will turn. Maybe he will repent of what he has done and reverse the devastation and bring blessing instead. This is what the prophet Joel is all about, in part. All right? Let me do something here. Yep. So here's what I want you to do. 
I'm going to show you one more thing, and then I'm going to leave you to it, and we'll pick up with it next week. A few sessions ago, over the summer, we talked about how Old Testament prophecy works, and that there's a timeline that we all find ourselves on, right? All of human history is moving forward in a certain sense of a space-time continuum going forward, right? And there's these events that, of course, happen on timelines. You know, and we could put any event on this timeline. It's a universal timeline that everyone shares. Not everyone shares the same experience. But, you know, your birthday's on the timeline. Your anniversary's on the timeline. You get the idea what I mean. I'm not, don't, don't get weirdly theological in my mind, in, in your mind. So, history's progressing in some time in the Old Testament era. Who knows exactly when? 8th century, arguably, maybe 7th century, maybe even 9th century BC. I don't know. This huge locust swarm hits. We talked about that the way Old Testament prophecy works is they look at events and expand on it. They take arguably a one-dimensional event, a, a point on a line, and then, you know, which we could call X if you're math if you're mathematically minded. And what a prophet does is he gives you a bigger picture of what this event is all about. The average person who sees this event just sees it for what it is, an event. But what the prophets do is they peer behind the veil. They're allowed into the throne room of God. They're allowed the voice of God, the visions of God. And what they do is they say, let me tell you what's really going on behind this event. You see this, but this is what's actually happening. So the way I like to put it is they give an X squared version of it. They take the point and square it out. Remember that? They expand the field of vision. So what I'll leave you with today, and then we'll pick up on next week, is that what the prophet Joel is doing is he's looking at this locust event going, we can all agree this is a calamity, but I'm here to tell you that this calamity is by the hand of God. That God is involved in this, and God is trying to communicate something to you through this, to show you something about his nature in this, and to accomplish something in his purposes through it. That's what prophets do. Does that make sense? So what I'd like you to do is this. We're going to pick up on this again next week. And I'm going to show you how then Joel continues to expand on this locust swarm within relation to this thing. It's a hugely important term in the entire Bible called the day of the Lord or the day of Yahweh. Whenever you see all capitals, it's Yahweh, right? We're going to pick up on that next week. But if you're willing, read Joel again. And if you're not willing, repent and then read Joel this week, okay? <laughs> Try to read it a couple more times. And you saw you could do it in like 10 minutes, maybe 15 and now that you have some of this mental fodder, start to fill in the gaps on it a little bit. Start to see why is he talking about what he talks about? How is Joel interpreting this event? And jot down a few questions that come up about how he's building on it and what that might mean. Does that make sense? Because he will start venturing off into places where you're like, wait, where are you going? Try that this week. We'll come back next week, and we'll finish up the Prophet Joel. We're done. God bless. Thanks for coming.